Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host, Penny Sarche. This week, we're very nicely transatlantic with me and Rowan in London, but also joined by Tim Revel in New York and Leah Crane in Chicago. Hello, both. Hiya. Hi. Coming up on the show today, we have this slightly obscene sounding noise. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Do I want to know what that is? Um, <laughs> We also have news on a possible resolution of one of the great paradoxes around black holes. And we have a new understanding of just why octopuses are so intelligent. We're also discussing a new opera that's based on the idea of uploading your consciousness to a computer. And remember, if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20, you can get a massive 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist. That link again is newscientist.com slash pod20. Now, we want to start with the climate crisis because just a few days ago, we saw a couple of extreme weather events at each pole with massive heat waves at both the Arctic and the Antarctic. Temperatures were 15 to 38 degrees Celsius warmer than normal in parts of the Antarctic. Um, That's 68 degrees Fahrenheit warmer. And in the Arctic, temperatures were 30 degrees Celsius above usual levels. Yeah, I just looked at the weather in Antarctica actually today. And Vostok is now minus 56 Celsius. So it has gone nice and cold again there. But as you say, it's absolutely shocking spikes in heat in both polar regions. Uh, So to put this into context, I spoke with Peter Stott. He's a climate scientist at the UK Met Office and professor of climate attribution at the University of Exeter. And he's author of the book Hot Air, the inside story of the battle against climate change denial. Peter, thanks for joining us. Now, look, you're a veteran climate scientist. You've seen a lot. How surprised were you by these temperatures in the Arctic and the Antarctic? Well, this is surprising. And, you know, as you say, I've been looking at climate records for a long time now. I think what we're seeing in the Arctic and Antarctic is both surprising, but also in some sense consistent with what we've been expecting. We have expecting big changes in the polar regions for a long time. But I think it's the nature of those changes that's taking me by surprise. For me, this is the, the really scary side of climate change. So the climate models, in terms of the global warming, the global average temperature, the climate model predictions have been spot on, actually, in terms of what we predicted 20 or 30 years ago. But now what we're seeing, what this means, what 1.1, 1.2 degrees Celsius global warming relative to pre-industrial means, what it's now starting to show is is some quite extreme changes and quite extreme variations. And some of these, because of the weather happening, 
have not been well simulated in past climate models because it depends on the details of the snow and the ice and the dynamical changes, etc., and the weather changes and all of this. So there is more for us to understand here. But what it is showing is that even as a warming of 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius is already setting in train some pretty dramatic and worrying changes. I saw lots of very shocked reaction from scientists. And one that stuck with me was um, saying it was a breakdown in the planetary climate system, this kind of anomaly. Is that something that you're happy with that kind of language, that kind of attribution? Well, it's a bit early to say exactly what's happening here, I would say. And if you use the word planetary breakdown, I would say we need to be quite clear what we mean by that. What I would say, though, is that, in fact, in both the Arctic, where we're seeing very dramatic warming, you know, up to three times the the global average warming in the Arctic, and, and these very dramatic changes in Arctic sea ice, we're seeing these very rapid changes now there. And in the Antarctic, the way that the Antarctic, it's not just the temperatures, but the way the Antarctic sea ice is now behaving in the last few years, is very different than it than it was behaving before that. So what we are seeing is is changing of the state, really, I would say. The the state of the climate that, that we've had actually for thousands of years is 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 now breaking down in that sense that we're into a new climate state. And this is a sign of this. And we don't actually know where this will lead, you know, which is one of the strong arguments, strongest arguments for me actually in in keeping to the Paris Agreement of keeping global warming to well below two degrees Celsius, because even at these levels of warming of 1.2 degrees, we're already seeing things changing really quite dramatically. So we've got to keep things away as much as we can from the even more dangerous levels that would happen above two degrees. Well, you mentioned, you know, we don't really know about what the global effects might be. But what about more local effects like on the Thwaites Glacier and some of the other unstable bits of ice that are, I say bits of ice, gigantic sheets of ice in Antarctica of this kind of warming? Yeah, I mean, this is this is really worrying. The ocean is warming and is warming, you know, at a rapid rate. And then that ocean warming is is eating away at these ice shelves that are holding back the glaciers from beneath. You know, there are there are observations starting to show that these what we call, you know, dynamical changes are starting to happen. And if and when they do, there's a huge amount of sea level locked up in those in those glaciers. And if they start to melt irreversibly, as is the fear in in the West Antarctic ice sheet. You know, there's there's a whole amount of sea level. There's many, many meters of sea level locked up that potentially once it starts melting because of the this huge big mass of ice that's locked up there, that once that starts to melt in this sort of more dynamical process, then that could be irreversible. And again, it's a reason to keep monitoring very, very carefully as scientists are doing. And it's also a reason to just, you know, for us for us scientists to say what I'm saying now really, that that the importance of rapidly reducing our greenhouse gas emissions is it's really emphasised, I think, by what's happening in the polar regions because of the rapidity with which changes are happening. Yeah, I mean, there, there is still time to cut emissions, isn't there? And all the scientists are unified on the, the need to cut emissions. I almost don't want to say it, but if we don't do them in time, if we don't cut emissions in time, what, what can we do? The fear here is in terms of what we can and cannot adapt to, really. So, you know, we are already seeing around the world, these more extreme heat waves. And we're seeing, we're starting to see, you know, in the places where most people live, we're starting to see these extremes of temperature. So for example, we almost saw 50 degrees Celsius in Canada last summer. We saw 48.8 degrees Celsius in Europe last summer in Sicily. We saw 38 degrees Celsius above the Arctic Circle, for example. So we're seeing these these extreme temperatures now around the world. 
and we're going to have to adapt to those and be more resilient to those. But the real worry for me is, is actually comes back to the polar regions. It's, it's these big changes that will be irreversible if we don't reduce emissions. You know, it's why we have this Paris Agreement that's very clear, because for me at least, it's, it's these risks, these big, big climate risks out there, which we're seeing, you know, expressed at the moment through the polar regions that would be, in effect, impossible to stop. Interesting, he mentioned the Antarctic sea ice and that we're changing into a new climate state there. Yeah, interesting or terrifying, mm. you know, depending on how you look at it. We've also got a piece on this in the magazine this week, so we'll link to that in our show notes. And now to octopuses and their remarkable brains. Yeah, so how did octopuses come to be so clever? We know they can solve mazes, use tools, um, even recognise people. And that's all very unusual for an invertebrate. So researchers are trying to work out how they've been able to evolve such intelligence. Okay, and what what's the latest So what's fascinating, I think, about the work that multiple research groups are doing is that it's pointing towards being something to do with tinkering with how genetic instructions are used to make proteins. Well, this is amazing, isn't it? Because this is the the central dogma. You're not supposed to tinker with this, are you? The, The central dogma of molecular biology that genes and DNA gets copied into RNA when it's needed. And then this RNA then serves as a template to make proteins. And they're the things that actually go and do things. Yeah, and what's really interesting is that, you know, there's actually a lot of tinkering that happens along that really central three-step process, some of which we don't understand that well. And and some of those steps um, seem to be really important for octopus intelligence and possibly for human intelligence too. So as you said, genes get copied into messenger RNA, and that's used as a sort of template to then go and make proteins. But to have a really complex and sophisticated organism, you need to sort of fine tune it, dial it up, dial it down, or even change those instructions themselves without actually changing the core genome. And this week, our reporter, Michael LePage, wrote about a study that implicates a different kind of RNA in the evolution of octopus intelligence. Ooh, a different kind of RNA. Yeah, so um, messenger RNA, as I just mentioned, that's the sort of the copy that you make of the gene when you're using a gene. but Cells can also produce really short strands of RNA called microRNAs, and these help regulate which genes get translated into proteins and when. So, for example, one way they work, some microRNAs will then find a complementary messenger RNA. They'll they'll bind to it because they recognize the sequence. But when they bind together, that sort of marks that messenger RNA for destruction. The cell destroys it and stops that template that was copied off of the gene from then being used to make a protein. And now a team has shown that cephalopods, the group that includes octopuses, they had a really big increase in their number of microRNAs during their evolution. And so did we actually in vertebrate evolution. So there's a, a comparison there. Okay, but what has that all got to do with brain development? So the thinking is that having a lot of these microRNAs would allow them to tweak gene expression in a way that you could generate a much wider variety of types of different neuron from the same set of genes, enabling much greater brain complexity. And when the team had a look, they did see that many of these microRNAs are active in the developing brains of young octopuses. Wow. And, but that that might not even be the whole story. Oh, I mean, of course, it's never the whole story. Yeah. But there's always more to know. But other teams um, are looking at a different kind of tweak called RNA editing. Okay, and that sounds straightforward. 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's probably what you'd expect. So yeah. um, a bit like microRNAs, we've known for some time that this sort of central way that genes are used can be tweaked uh, by something called RNA editing, where actually the, the instructions that are copied out from your genes can then actually be tweaked and changed to read something else. And that's another way that could enable octopuses to develop a wider range of neurons just from the same genes. Wow, it's, this is so interesting, isn't it? Because to think that intelligence doesn't come from the genes that shape our brains directly, but tweaking how those genes are translated into proteins. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And, you know, we were, uh, do you remember when genomes were first sequenced? We were quite surprised that humans actually had so few genes. And even though we've known for several decades now that there's all of these other little additional tweaks that go on, there's still so much more for us to learn about it. Let's take a quick break. Did you know we've launched our very own online learning academy? New Scientist Academy is the home of immersive and interactive science courses designed by the team at New Scientist magazine and a global team of science experts. We offer CPD accredited short and long courses suitable for all levels in the most engaging topics in science. Perhaps you'd like to know how to live a greener lifestyle or how to improve your physical or mental health. Or maybe you're curious to explore the laws of nature within the mysteries of the universe, or perhaps you're ready to understand what makes your brain tick so that you can function at your optimum level. And if none of that (laughs) tempts you, perhaps quantum physics and the possibility of multiple worlds is where you'd like to expand your knowledge. Yes, very much so. Uh, New Scientist Academy is currently offering a huge 50% off each of our fascinating science courses. So waste no time in broadening your horizons and find the course for you. Check out newscientist.com slash courses and use the code POD50 to save 50%. But hurry, this offer is only available until the end of March 2022. And we'd also like to tell you about our next online Big Thinkers talk. It's the second in the Big Thinkers series this year, and it's all about what we don't know about gravity. Our speaker is Claudia Duram, Professor of Physics, Imperial College London, and it's taking place at 6 to 7 p.m. BST on Thursday, the 31st of March. For more information, visit newscientist.com slash gravity. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now it's time for our our now regular segment of getting off the planet. (laughs) And Leo, we have a potential solution to a major paradox about black holes. But first, you'll have to remind us um, what actually is the paradox and what does it have to do with Stephen Hawking? Yes, so the paradox is called the black hole information paradox. And it's based on two major pieces of theory. 
The big one is Stephen Hawking's finding that black holes emit some radiation, which is called Hawking radiation for obvious reasons, <laughs> and that the way in which they emit it depends only on the mass of the black hole, its charge and its angular momentum, not at all on what fell into the black hole to create it in the first place. And the other big piece of theory is that in quantum mechanics, you're not allowed to destroy information. You have to be able to take all the information that's gettable about an object and rewind that object or fast forward it. And that's a big part of the basis of lots of physics. And those two things just don't mesh. If black holes evaporate away via Hawking radiation, and that radiation has nothing to do with what fell into it, that means that black holes are destroying information, which is not allowed. Okay, so the reason it is such a sort of daunting paradox is that it undermines all our understanding of quantum mechanics if until we can solve it. Is that right? Yeah, the, the reason it's such a big problem, you know, the black hole paradox itself isn't of any practical question. Um, whether black holes destroy information isn't actually something we care about in our day-to-day -day lives. But something physicists care a lot about is how gravity and quantum mechanics go together. And this is one of the really jarring places where they appear not to go together, where our understanding of how black holes behave under gravity and our understanding of how all objects must behave under quantum physics just don't mesh. Okay, so that's the problem. What's the solution? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the solution, and I'm going to be a little bit vague about it because yeah, the solution do. is, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, what, what the researchers did is a lot of math and they applied some sort of quantum corrections to some equations about black holes and how they emit radiation and our understanding of stars and how they evolve into black holes. And they found that if you take two stars that are different, say one is made of all one thing and the other one has sort of two layers of different densities, those stars on a quantum mechanical level look different. And as they evolve into black holes, those black holes on a quantum mechanical level look different. So somehow there is quantum information escaping the black hole, which would in theory allow you to tell what fell into the black hole and what created it. And that theoretically would just erase the black hole information paradox because then there's not any information being destroyed. It's just quantum information that's still coming out of the black hole. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's a lot. And there are a lot of really big unanswered questions such as, oh, what is that quantum information and how does it come out of the black hole? <laughs> Just, just, but it's just a few minor things to figure out, yeah. 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 Okay. So quantum information is allowed out. Oh, it's not destroyed. It's coming out. But how does it get out? Uh, we don't know the answer to that via Hawking radiation, presumably. But what we know is that when you look at the black hole from far away, you should be able to, in theory, not in practice, see that quantum information and tell two black holes of the same mass apart. Okay. What about the physicists you spoke to? Were they popping champagne corks at the at this final you know, resolution of the paradox? Or is there still too far, too far to go? There's still a lot of information we don't have yet. So it's kind of an exciting step. 
but the bigger question of quantum gravity is still sort of looming over everything. And the methods they use to do this work could end up being really important in figuring that out. But that's still the the big question. And moving gleefully to other cosmology <laughs> news, I saw there's now 5,000 confirmed exoplanets, so planets outside our solar system. And uh, they've been confirmed now more than 5,000 in uh, 3,759 planetary star systems. Yes, there are lots of planets out there, turns <laughs> out. Uh, most of them were discovered by the Kepler telescope, but a lot of them we don't have that much information about. And soon when the James Webb Space Telescope starts looking at stuff, we might get a lot more information about them, which is mm. really exciting. Yeah, no, it no, it is actually. I Because I used to kind of glaze over a bit when you hear about a new exoplanet or another new exoplanet, you know, thousands of light years away or something. But then when we had this milestone of 5,000, it made me look at it fresh and I did realize again how amazing it is that we can map our neighborhood our cosmic neighborhood and find planets out there and and then to look, be able to look at them even more closely as we will soon is going to be pretty mind-blowing I think and even the fact that looking for exoplanets and finding them has become so mundane yeah. is pretty amazing yeah And now to New York, where our opera correspondent, Tim, has just seen a, a fascinating new show. The show is called Upload. It's by the Dutch composer and director Michel van der Aar. And it's about a daughter who's trying to come to terms with the decision of her father to physically die in order to have his consciousness uploaded to a computer. And here's a clip. Take one last trip in your biological body and then you, uh, you, you live forever. Just have to die first. My travels haven't brought me any further. Death didn't really matter to me. Life did. Sounds intense. Tim, how was it? <laughs> it? It was intense. It was really intense. And the staging in particular was incredible with like these projections representing the uploaded father. So it's set across two timelines where you have sort of flashbacks in the present day. And in that clip you heard, you get a bits of both. And so the sort of operatic parts, those are the father and the daughter in the present day. And the father's this digital avatar that's projected onto various screens on the stage using live motion capture. So you can see the you know, the real opera singer on the stage, but you also see the projected version of him. And he's not really in high definition and parts of his digital presence sort of fall away and dissolve throughout, showing that the whole thing's not really going to plan. And in the flashbacks, you see how the father came to be uploaded in the first place and the practicalities of that. And that was the sort of speaking parts that you heard. And those bits are really like classic sci-fi. You see a big tech campus on a on a screen with like an idyllic countryside setting, making it seem like a very natural thing to undertake. And one of the details I really liked is one of the people undergoing the procedure is a research scientist who's there on a grant because he couldn't afford it otherwise. And he's there <laughs> for humanity to preserve his knowledge of the Holocene, which is a nice little detail. Yeah. And then that sort of present day bit, the main interaction is that the daughter's really unsure about her father's new state. You know, he's this hologram digital uploaded version of himself but is he really him or is he just a digital replica and that's mm. where the sort of angst and tragedy comes in which is really you know well it's opera isn't it 
Yeah, well, it's it's, it's different from uh, the regular themes of opera, that's for sure. Yeah. But uh, but we have, I mean, that sort of confusion about whether a digital replica is really human or not. Um, we've seen a lot in sci-fi that someone uploads a consciousness into a, a digital form. People like to play with this idea, even though it's very far off in reality, maybe will never happen. I wondered why why people are so fascinated with that. Yeah, it's it's something that comes up a lot. Unlike, you know, there's a TV series with the same name, also called Upload and the, a similar sort of premise, but, you know, done very different differently. There's like books like um, Ubik by Philip K. Dick, which is an absolute mind trip on this premise. And Frankenstein by Jeanette Winterson, who we interviewed yeah. not that long ago, where she sort of reimagines Frankenstein as a sort of AI pioneer bent on immortality by uploading his mind into a machine. And then there's also, there's obviously, you know, there's a Black Mirror episode touching on this. And I think it's, for me, it's because it's just, it is just such a fascinating idea with lots of potential philosophical implications. And like, on the one hand, it's about immortality. Would you want to live forever? And what price would you be willing to pay to do so? Would you give up your body, for example? But it also makes you sort of face up to that difficult question of what even is you? What constitutes you? And if you copied every piece of information that defines you and recreate in a machine, is that still really you? Yeah. So, Tim, um, it's impossible, right? Or will it be ready one day? How far away can we do this? Yes, if you just visit my sci-fi campus, I will uh, <laughs> I'll let you upload yourself anytime. So, yeah, it's like anything close to this, it, as far as I'm aware, is uh, a very long way off. But that doesn't mean that people aren't trying to replicate people in some sort of way to have a similar sort of effect. And in recent years, we've seen quite a lot of this where people attempt to bring some essence of a loved one back from the dead using a chatbot. And normally this means you sort of train a chatbot on text written by the person who's deceased, you know, like emails and text messages and things you've had with them. And then the way AI works is it tends to emulate the text that it's been trained on. And so if you then have an interaction with that chatbot, you might find that they use, you know, certainly phrases they've used with you before. And of course, you know, no one's claiming that that would be that suddenly that that person who has passed is now this chatbot. But a lot of people might find some comfort in having an interaction like that. And, you know, rationally, you would know that it wasn't your loved one, but emotions are really that rational. And most of the stories, you know, along these lines have been one person sort of having a bit of a a go at this sort of project. But last year, it came out that Microsoft has patented some technology to do this exact sort of thing. But then they revealed that essentially, after they'd thought about it for a bit, they decided it was a bit too disturbing to use. (laughs) It reminds me actually of simpler organisms are being tried to be digitally recreated. There's a nematode project Mm. to try to do that. Well, it sounds, it does sound fascinating. I hope it comes to London after New York. Let's play out with another clip from the show. Now, listen to this. Any idea idea Uh, what that is? Sounds like a bodily function in a beautiful (laughs) rainforest. (laughs) Um, Should we play it again? Go on.
All right. So the clue is you spoke about it, Penny, a few weeks ago on the show. Mm, is this is this the kiss squeak of an orangutan? It is the kiss mm-hmm. squeak. But what's cool about it is that the kiss squeak you heard there was a, of wild orangutans adapting the vocab of the kiss squeak. And they do that now according to their social environment. So basically according to the other apes around them. So is that the same thing as having accents or is it more like sort of colloquial slang depending on where you live? Yeah, it's exactly. It's more like slang. They call it vocal personalities. The animals change the pitch and the duration of the calls. um, But it's something they learn this socially rather than it being something innate as we used to assume it was. Um, And so you get it's different in big or small groups. So if you're in a high density group, the orangutans use a lot of original calls and the fashion changes a lot for the ones that are in favour. But in low density groups, uh, they're much more conventional. So in bigger groups, a new call might be more likely to arise and then it gets picked up and it spreads throughout the group, a bit like a meme, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like novelty is very cool and the animals want to show that they can adopt this new bit of slang. And interestingly, chimp vocab is less flexible than this. And the reason I wanted to play the clip, um, and thanks to Adriano Lamiera from the University of Warwick for sending it over. And the reason is that the evolution of human language, you know, it's still this massive mystery. But work like this can start to, you know, lay out the path from the grunts and the calls of lower primates to the richness and variety of human language. Now that I can fully appreciate it, can I hear it again? Yeah. Yes, Ollie, can we have that again? <laughs> Lovely. That's it for this week. Do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen. Thanks to our guests, Tim Revel and Leah Crane. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarche. Bye for now and take care. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.